complementary to our sustainability efforts, we've launched a smart city initiative and we've published a future ready master plan, which really looks at how technology, data and analytics can help us to accelerate towards the goals that I've outlined. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm joined by Chris Castro, Director of Sustainability and Resilience and co-chair of the Future Ready Initiative for the City of Orlando. Chris has accomplished a tremendous amount with the city in a very short period of time, and we're really fortunate, and I'm personally thrilled to learn more about what Chris is currently doing and actually learn more about him because he's a fascinating individual. Chris, welcome to Smart Energy Voices, and thanks for taking some time with us today. Thank you, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. Super. Well, listen, let's get started by having you tell us about your your current role for the city of Orlando. Over the last seven and a half years, I've had the absolute privilege to um, work as the senior advisor to Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer here in the city, as well as direct the Office of Sustainability and Resilience. And there is never a dull moment within my role. I get to oversee some really exciting policy interventions, program developments, partnerships that we're establishing to really advance the overall vision of Orlando moving towards becoming one of the most environmentally friendly, socially equitable and inclusive and economically vibrant cities in the 21st century. Chris, I mentioned in the intro that you've accomplished a lot in in a relatively short period of time. Tell us about your journey. How did you first get involved in sustainability and what's been your career path? Yeah, I mean, when I think about this, I really, it dates me back to my early upbringings in Miami. I'm a second generation Cuban American and I grew up very much in a household that embraced the outdoors and did a lot to get my brothers and sisters immersed in the environment. I actually grew up on a palm tree farm. My stepdad owns a palm tree nursery down in Miami, Florida, and grew up for a long time tending to those palms and sometimes getting in trouble and being sent to the farm for for, for punishment, so to speak. (laughs) And over time, that really, I gained a love and an affinity for the environment. I'd say that the main things that really got me there were surfing. So I started surfing at age 10 and and also scuba diving and and those two activities really opened my eyes to the just the wonders and the mystery of the ocean and of course everything that comes with it and and so i ended up getting a full ride to the university of central florida which is up here in orlando mm-hmm. and that's when i really started to think about my future career path i came to ucf fully undeclared i did not know what major i was going to be in i just knew i was just kind of gung ho really interested in making an impact in my life, a positive impact in the world, in my community. And the long story short is that I ended up going after this this course called environmental sociology. I ended up having a professor by the name of Dr. Penelope Canan, who completely changed my trajectory, or at least helped me crystallize and define where I was going. 
Dr. Mm-hmm. Kanan was one of the chief scientists as part of the Montreal Protocol and really helped to advance the ozone protections. And, and she's actually written a book called Ozone Connections. And it was in her class when I really had this epiphany that my time on this planet could best be spent at working to improve, protect, and restore the environment that we all depend upon. And that really created this snowball, right? Shortly after that, I started gathering a group of my friends and we, even without an organization, started to create pressure to the university to commit to climate commitments, right? To climate Mm -hmm. neutrality. And we ended up getting our university and board of trustees to sign that American College and University President Climate Commitment. It was a big deal back in 2007. And that committed the university to carbon neutrality by by 2050 or sooner. And then I remember our president at the time, John Hitt, turned to me and said, okay, Chris, we got your commitment. Now what? And I said, well, perfect question. We need to develop a roadmap and a plan. And so I helped to build UCF's first climate action plan with a group of 10 other students on campus and our operational and faculty. And what I realized was there was a huge gap. And the gap was that this plan wasn't trying to activate the 60 some odd thousand undergrad students to advance this go- these goals, right? We weren't tapping into that incredible knowledge base. And so I ended up creating an organization as a result called Ideas for Us. And Ideas for Us, in a nutshell, is really an action environmental organization that's focused on getting people to be educated, engaged, and empowered to be stewards of the environment and true champions. And so Ideas for Us starts as this student group, and we start getting students involved in all types of projects, from writing grants for rooftop solar on campus to starting our recycling programs in the dorms and launching the campus garden and so on and so forth, all these sustainability projects. And little did I know that ideas would turn into this quintessential grassroots movement. If you can imagine at the time, Facebook is just coming out. I start using that platform as an educational tool. I start posting up photos about our events and, you know, our whys and the reasons why what we were doing. All of a sudden, I get inbound emails and comments from different students at other universities saying, hey, this is an amazing idea. I'd love to take ideas to FSU, to NYU, to other places. So we started creating, you know, I started working after hours and on weekends, you know, mentoring students, and we start growing this network. And today... Ideas for Us has done projects in over 250 communities across 30 countries around the world. It's become a UN accredited organization and just kind of amazing story there. And so Ideas really has been the the roots of, of my career path, I think, after that. And little by little, I started to create other ventures and entities that aligned with that vision. So Citizen Energy, which is a clean energy consulting firm, shortly was started after I graduated And then I ended up being rolled into the city of Orlando, as I mentioned, the last seven and a half years. And in closing, in June of this year, we I was part of a team that just launched another company, which is a B Corp bank. It's the first B Corp certified bank in the state of Florida, and it's called Climate First Bank. And so we're really focused on how do we use our money as a force for good and begin to align 100% of our investments and our loan products to solutions that advance sustainability and a zero carbon future. So a lot of stuff in there, but it's been an interesting journey and one that isn't necessarily directionally straight, but you know, just following my passion and, and opportunities that really started to open up as I began to really dive in to making an impact. 
Oh, my goodness. That's an incredible story. You know, it's interesting. There have been several guests, Jigger Shah, who we talked about earlier, and Rob Threlkeld and Zephyr Taylor with Mars. A number of the guests that I've been fortunate to interview kind of had this spark when they were young that they knew they wanted to make a difference. And it's fascinating to hear your story have have an element of that. Your bias for action, though, is incredible. I mean, there aren't too many undergraduate students who see a need, start a program, make something happen, and then for it to have legs, for it to be sustainable. I mean, 200 plus projects in lots of countries. It's fantastic, Chris. So pleased to have you with us. And I can't wait to see what you're going to be accomplishing in the future. We got a lot more to go, that's for sure. And it's been an incredible journey with a team. I think that's one of the biggest strengths that I've been able to tap into is my ability of building a team and and really tapping into what I often call passion for change, right? As students, there, there wasn't a lot of resources to go around and paying ourselves to do this work. But it was, I found students who were so passionate, they were putting time in, in between classes, after hours, over weekends, just to advance this mission. And still to this day, you know, I'm on the board of directors, I'm a volunteer, but still to this day, more than 13 years later from the launch, we still have individuals around the world that are tapping into that passion for change and are organizing their own communities and implementing their own strategies. I mean, it's just amazing. So I'm curious, what do you think has contributed to you being effective at building and creating teams? Because it's a unique skill that not many people have. You seem to have it naturally. Is there something in your background or something you were involved with that kind of sparked that? Seems like it's come to me naturally, John. I think it's a matter of it's unequivocal when I speak about this topic that passion exudes. And I think that passion plays a real role in bringing people along and and really helping them uncover their own passions for these topics. And so, you know, I often call my kind of the triple threat of success being passion, patience, and persistence. And across the journey, whether it's been with ideas, whether it's been here at the city, whether it's been with my companies, passion, patience, and persistence have been the, the three most important elements of success. And if you can bring that to any given effort, I think you'll, you'll see that you're going to succeed more often than not. Yeah, that's awesome. What great insight and what a great philosophy. Well, we're going to come back to some of the things you're doing outside of Orlando later in the conversation, but let's get into some of the activities in Orlando first, because you've really done great work there. The city's been a leader in sustainability for some time. You said you've been involved with the city now for seven and a half years. Tell us about how Orlando's sustainability program has evolved since you've been involved, Chris. Yeah, my, my focus has really been implementation. I think that's the most important word out of the work that my office does. Mayor Dyer is an incredible mayor still to this day. He's the mayor of Orlando and just had incredible foresight back in 2007 when he was looking at the future of our city to really think that sustainability and resilience need to be a top priority of his administration moving forward. And in 2007, Mayor Dyer launched Greenworks Orlando. This is the brand that we've been working off of, almost like a public works department, but really focused on a sustainability, right? A Greenworks department that really advanced both our internal efforts of waste diversion and decarbonization and efficiency and all the important things, right? 
but also have a pivot on creating this culture, putting it into the DNA of our community so that it's something that perpetuates and sustains long beyond his tenure. And so Mayor Dyer, when he launched in 2007, like most cities, started to focus internally. And they, they developed a municipal sustainability operations plan that, you know, again, looked at how do we transition our fleet vehicles to alternative fuel and electric? How do we start driving efficiency and adding renewables and diverting our waste? And so they developed this internal plan, and that was first published in 2012. And at that same year, they decided to bring together a task force of community leaders in Orlando and help to create our first externally facing community sustainability action plan. Mm-hmm. I ended up being selected as one of those individuals, about 25 individuals in the community on this task force. And so I was brought to the table because of my experience at UCF and with Ideas for Us and, and at the time Citizen Energy and helped to really shape this external plan, our first community sustainability action plan, which ended up being published in 2013. Well, shortly after, this is October 2013, this goes to council and gets published. Shortly after that, they solicit for a position that's looking at creating a clean energy ecosystem in Orlando. I apply for this position and end up getting selected in Q1 of 2014. So we're talking about just a couple of months after the plan is published, I get onboarded. I come on to really focus on the clean energy and green buildings pillars of this plan and ended up evolving that over time. And so I was promoted a, a year later into the director role and eventually expanded my role to also focus on resilience. At first, it was just sustainability. And I saw the need for us to really center resilience as well. And so we created this office of sustainability and resilience. And I think that's one of the most important things that we've done thus far is institutionalize this work. A lot of cities have strong mayors and they say sustainability is a priority. And here's this initiative and we're going to work on it. And then the mayor leaves and a new mayor comes in and has a different initiative. And I said, we can't afford that. We must begin to work at institutionalize this and setting the roots deep. So we've created an official office now in the executive department of the city. So we still have the same clout coming from the mayor's office, right? We also created a chapter of sustainability in our municipal code. So our muni code, our ordinances, has a specific chapter, chapter 15, focused on sustainability and resilience, and it calls to a director in the office of sustainability. So now we've really made that permanent. We also have a chapter in the internal policies and procedures focused on sustainability, calling out this office. So now we've really set up long-term permanence of this work beyond Mayor Dyer's term, which I think has been, again, a very important goal of mine to establish. But that's how things have evolved essentially over time. And now from one person, which I was hired to be the main guy working on this stuff, I now oversee an office of 13 individuals, seven of them who are full-time the rest of them that are either full-time fellows, grant-funded, or that are part-time individuals. And we have a force. We basically have built a sustainability consulting firm. That's the best way I like to describe what I do. Because mm-hmm. our role is to help the chief of police and the chief of fire and our head of public works and our streets and stormwater department to implement and change the operational procedures to ensure that we're moving towards these goals. Right. So we're, mm-hmm. we're added capacity for these departments. They love when they're working with Greenworks because they have additional staff. We can start thinking through alternatives for their fleet or whatever their procurement might be. And so we're a support body for the entire city internally and externally. Right. So mm-hmm. I get into our utility, to our transit authority, to our university, regional planning councils, and we're supporting the whole region with, again, creating that culture 
that that Mayor Dyer has has really had the vision of creating. So that's how things have evolved. And now Orlando has become one of the leading cities, I would say, that is really advancing this work, not just nationally, but I think we're getting a lot more attention even internationally for the work that we're doing to create this model for how a city can transition towards a zero carbon economy. That's really fantastic. I like the way you took a step back and really thought of things from a system standpoint to say what has to be put in place to make sure that this work sustains over time and building things into the code and creating this structure, this consultancy, if you will, is really having a tremendous multiplier effect, which explains, I think, in part how you've been able to accomplish so much during your tenure so far at Orlando. Definitely. So what are the, the, the drivers and the key components of the current program? It sounds like the program's constantly evolving. Let's take a snapshot of kind of where you are today. What are the key drivers? What are the key components? We co-created our community sustainability action plan with our community. And when we were doing over a dozen different workshops and community forums to better understand what the residents wanted our city to focus on, we ended up identifying seven key priority areas for urban sustainability. Mm-hmm. Those seven areas include clean energy and the transition of our electric grid to a decarbonized, zero-carbon future, right? The second one being green buildings and ensuring that as we move forward, that we're constructing healthier, more resilient, greener buildings that improve comfort and productivity, but also have less impact on the environment and natural resources. So that's that's number two. Number three is this focus around local food systems. A sustainable city in the future has to be more reliant and dependent on the food system that can support themselves locally than importing stuff all over the world, right? As we know. Mm-hmm. So we were really focused on creating a robust local food system of producers, distributors, even down to the composting and the re-earthing of that organic material, right? And so we're looking at this holistically. The fourth major pillar is zero waste. We want to move towards a zero waste to landfill and incinerators by the year 2040. And so this is all about not just improving recycling of traditional stuff, but e-waste and textiles and batteries and hazardous waste and organics. That's a big focus of ours and part of the climate strategy, too. Number five is really this topic of what we call livability, which really is this mix of urban and regional planning and all of our nature-based solutions. So when we're talking about tree canopy coverage and wildlife habitats and urban villages, that really falls in the livability bucket and, and trying to create a vibrant community that's walkable, bikeable, that's healthy for our residents, that's protecting us from extreme heat, things, things mm-hmm. like that, right? So that's livability. The last two, clean water. So obviously not just from a quality standpoint, but water supply. And here in Central Florida and across the state, water supply concerns are growing and I think will be a real shock and and threat for the future of Floridians. And the last topic is around electric and alternative transportation. So it's really Mm -hmm. focused on how do we start to move away from fossil fuel driven transportation towards alternative fuels and, and those primarily zero emission type vehicles. So those seven key priority areas came out from our residents when we were talking to them about what they would want us to see as well as the goals that we have for each one of those pillars were, were co-created. And, and again, it really helped us to crystallize what exactly we should be doing in Orlando to improve quality of life, to protect ourselves from the threats of climate and the environmental crisis, and position Orlando to take advantage 
of the economic development and job creation opportunities of the green economy, which we know is going to be the prominent source of our economy in the 21st century. So if we can get a start on that now, we can be a prominent city in the future that's going to attract creative class, it'll attract talent, and it'll attract, as a result, business development, which creates economic growth and so on and so forth, right? So that's the theory of change behind these seven key priorities. I would say in almost all seven, you referenced climate. And I know for, for cities right now, climate strategy is a huge initiative. Those Many cities have launched a climate strategy and a climate action plan. Those that haven't are working on one. Give us a little more color, a little more detail on kind of how you view climate strategy as, as it relates to cities and how it weaves throughout your sustainability plan. Definitely. And you're spot on, John. Right now, I think the the charge of cities and businesses and academic institutions is to move towards that zero carbon future. And, you know, I think I'll first start out by saying we've joined pretty much every commitment you possibly could as it relates to climate. Everything from the Global Covenant of Mayors to the We Are Still In campaign, which is now America Is In, to C40 Cities, American Cities Climate Challenge, CDP, you name it, right? And even passing a climate emergency declaration last November. This is a very serious thing for our community. In terms of our strategy, like many things, we look to the data. We look to the information mm-hmm. and the data to, to guide our priorities and what we should be focused on. And every year since 2007, Orlando has done what's called the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Inventory, right? It's a carbon Mm -hmm. accounting of looking at not just our municipal operations, but citywide. What are the biggest sectors contributing to the carbon budget? And and how do we start to really focus on those and implement reduction strategies? So when I did this first time around, I was fascinated by the data. And what it told us is that building energy use contributes to over 72% of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with Orlando citywide. That Mm -hmm. is the on-site energy used on the building from gas for cooking, heating, et cetera, to the emissions factor of that electron. This is not unlike many urban settings, like a big city like New York or DC, LA, Denver, et cetera. Buildings are often the biggest gorilla to tackle. So that was eye-opening. Secondly, of course, on-road transportation. 27% of our emissions profile is on-road transportation. And then you start seeing smaller but still important wedges like our solid waste and landfill emissions and our wastewater and and potable water processing emissions and even fugitive emissions, supply chain, you name it. So in looking at the data, we've really identified that there are four key strategies in the short term that if implemented at scale will allow us to achieve the science-based targets that we need to in Orlando. Those science-based targets, by the way, is zero carbon economy by 2050, intermediate CO2 reduction targets of 52% in 2030, 75% in 2040 in order to achieve the goal. So the buckets is, first and foremost, energy efficiency in buildings. We know that buildings are the biggest challenge. We know that 20 to 30% of the energy being used is being wasted and could be used more efficiently. And And it also creates jobs and an economy. So reducing building energy use is top-notch. Second is decarbonizing the electric supply. We know that Mm -hmm. a big part of the building's profile is the emissions factor and the fact that we're still using coal and natural gas for the majority of our power, although that's starting to dwindle. And I could talk about that. Uh, Thirdly is reducing vehicle miles traveled. 
This is about promoting alternative transportation programs because we've ran the numbers and it's not possible to hit the goals, even if everything is electric on the road. We have to start to reduce and be more efficient at how we travel both people and goods. So we're doing a lot with micromobility and you know, enabling electric transit and electric autonomous shuttles and, and more. And then lastly is electrify everything. We need to electrify our buildings. We need to electrify our transportation and every system possible that's currently using fossil fuels. So when you look at those four key buckets, those are the mitigation strategies that we've prioritized. And so that's really what we're you know, moving forward with. Us and about 25 other cities in the country have been part of the American Cities Climate Challenge. And the beautiful thing is that we were part of this cohort of cities where we're all prioritizing these four buckets. And now we're sharing best practices about how we're implementing policies and programs or establishing partnerships to advance those reduction goals. So yeah, a lot, lot there happening. Yeah, you mentioned how Orlando's a part of all those initiatives. I do see your name and the city of Orlando associated with virtually every major initiative, which is great. And I think your, your influence, I'm sure, is being felt in all of those groups. What's next, Chris? Give us, give us a sense for what's next for Orlando. Tell us about kind of your vision of the future. I mean, you've touched on it somewhat with these four pillars, with, with these four elements of the climate strategy. But, you know, like, where do you really want to see things going? Well, I often point to Mayor, Mayor Dyer's quote about really trying to position Orlando to realize the Epcot vision, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, right? This was built in early, we're actually celebrating the 50th anniversary of Epcot and Disney World here in Orlando this year. And that was that vision of creating this community of, of tomorrow that essentially showcased solutions of how humans and, and nature can, can coexist and thrive in peace and harmony with one another. I mean, that's the ultimate kind of goal. How do we get to that point? And so we've had that vision, as I talked about, being the most environmentally friendly, socially equitable and inclusive, economically vibrant city in the 21st century. That's really rooted in the triple bottom line, people, planet, prosperity, each one of those goals, right? And and so that's a big part of our culture now. The other thing that we're thinking about is how do we get future ready for what is coming? I don't think we can ever be anticipating every new technology disruption or business model innovation. But there are things that cities can do to get ahead of that. And so complementary to our sustainability efforts, we've launched a smart city initiative of which I co-chair here at the city. And we've published a future ready master plan, which really looks at how technology, data and analytics can help us to accelerate towards the goals that I've outlined. It's not new goals. They're really how do we leverage these tools to improve quality of life, to improve our government services and functions, to reduce cost on society, and at the same time, achieve many of the environmental sustainability efforts we're we're striving for. So future ready and and this notion around smart and sustainable communities is what's coming next, not just for Orlando, but for cities all around the world and trying to figure out how that plays. And, And I'd say the last real important point is around equity. As you heard in Mayor Dyer's definition, Inclusion and equity are very important pillars of our sustainability agenda and and of Orlando's future agenda. So much so that in January of this year, Mayor Dyer hired for the first time a chief equity officer at the same level as me, where we are working internally and externally to infuse equity and inclusion as part of our city, as part of the future of our city. We are very diverse in our community here. 
we think it's a big strength of why Orlando is such a great place to live, work, learn, and play. And ultimately, we want to foster that. We want to do a better job at addressing the historic inequities that have been faced in Black, Indigenous, and people of color, communities of color, Hispanic populations, etc. And and we want to try to move in a direction where equity is realized in almost everything that we do. So I think that's the evolution of where we're headed. And the more that we can center this future-ready and this equity components into what we're already doing, I think the better Orlando is going to be well into the future. Yeah, the, the sense of vision is very compelling. I talk to a lot of corporate execs. I talk to a lot of municipal execs. And the clarity of your vision, Chris, and kind of where you're headed and how you're going to get there is really extraordinary. So thank, thank you. For, hear. Thanks for sharing the depth of uh, information and insight not only what you're doing now and how you're doing it, but where you're headed. You do things outside of your activities for Orlando. You mentioned the launch of that bank. And frankly, it was that release in June that kind of caught my eye. When I first saw the release, I was like, oh, I thought Chris would never leave Orlando and then found out it was something you were doing in addition to your activities. Tell us, tell us about the things you're involved with in addition to your core role at the city of Orlando. Well, everybody who knows me knows that I'm a social entrepreneur at heart. And a lot of people call me a govpreneur because of the way that I've brought in that culture into the city and been able to apply it to local government. That's not common in local government, as you can imagine, right? But the creative thinking around business models or new services and policies, I've been able to apply that type of thinking. But quite frankly, my, my, my grandfather, my stepdad, Many of my family members are entrepreneurs. They've started their own companies. They've they've basically um, held them. And I think being in that upbringing, in that environment I was raised, gave me this work ethic that I think is unparalleled. I'm working around the clock, people who know me, and and it kind of goes to show a lot of people are like, do you even sleep? And like, what's going on? And, And it's that work ethic. It's back to the passion, right? I can't stop it. It's not what I do. It's who I am. And that's a big difference from a lot of people where they see themselves as what they do as a career path and they have a kind of a separate life. I I don't have that, that differentiation. And that's both a a benefit and a curse, as you can imagine. So I've put a lot of time and effort into nonprofit organizations, into community-based organizations, and into launching ventures that all align with sustainability and climate action. Starting back with ideas for us, as I talked about there, and I'm still the president of that board and very intimately engaged to launching Citizen Energy, this clean energy kind of boutique consulting firm still operating today, by the way, in DC Metro and in parts of California. And outside of those companies, also on on a lot of different academic and nonprofit boards, Goodwill Industries of Central Florida, one of the largest nonprofits in the state of Florida, over $60 million budget I serve on the board for, and I've been honored to, to do that. I also chair the Florida Solar Energy Center, which is the state's clean energy research institute. It's almost like an NREL for the state of Florida. And so I've had incredible experience in, in learning about the innovation that's coming out of this lab. And whether it's hydrogen or batteries or solar vehicles, you name it, we're, we're, we're testing it all. And then that brings me to this venture of Climate First Bank, which it has a long story, but ultimately the, the the CEO of this bank, his name is Ken Leroux, and he's somebody who I very much look up to and I think is an incredible individual. He's been a banker his whole life, but he also calls himself a rabid environmentalist. And so you don't often see those two as his bank CEO coming together. Ken launched what was called First Green Bank 
back in 2008, the same year I started Ideas for Us. And so we knew each other because we were in Orlando starting these sustainability type ventures before it was common in the lexicon and common practice and knowledge. And so we were kind of these two vanguards and Climate First Bank ends up exiting in 2018. And I get a call six months later by Ken saying, Chris, we did well with First Green, but I'm getting the itch again. And I said, Ken, what do you mean? I mean, you're, you're good for the rest of your life and your grandkids. You're good. And he says, I didn't make the impact I wanted. I want you to help me build a board and build a, an actual FDIC insured bank that's focused on solving the climate crisis and advancing sustainability, everything that you're about. And I said, Ken, I'd be honored to try to do this you know, after hours and on weekends to, to do that. And we've pulled together an incredible team of entrepreneurs and community leaders who are now guiding us in a very exciting direction. And earlier this year, we got FDIC insurance and approval. We got approval from the state OSR, um, state regulation, and and then um, became a B Corp pending organization now, uh, the first B Corp certified bank in the state of Florida. So we're doing some really cool things with that, including specific loans for rooftop solar, specific loans for only plug-in vehicles. You can't get it on a loan unless there's a plug. Green building retrofits. We're committing to $100 million in green building retrofits for existing facilities. And those are just a couple of examples of some of the specific loan products that we've created and figured out how to make the math work to to really scale solutions and do it in a community bank model. That community bank model is very unique, but we do anticipate this going to become public over time within the first seven years and really making this a replicable model for communities across the country. So yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. I figured out a way to weave each one of these entities into the day-to-day work that I do as an extension of the efforts that I have in Orlando. And I think it's working. It's beginning, you know, we're starting to see pretty significant momentum, not just here, but across the state and, and you know, around the country. Well, Chris, I mean, you've got a big job. And you're doing all of these other things. I'm convinced there's three or four of you. There can't be just one person doing all these things. You know, it's interesting. As we were talking, you strike me as an incredible entrepreneur. I was wondering the degree to which, you know, your family background and your family owning a palm tree farm. And you mentioned your grandfather having his his own business. It, it's clear that those experiences as you were growing up have have helped shape you as a as a very dynamic and visionary entrepreneur. So it's it's fascinating to see, and it's a good segue into some of the more personal things that I'd like to talk about. The the first of which is you've accomplished so much. Is there one thing that you could say you're most proud of at this point in your career? That's a tough one, John. I will be straight with you on that one. I think there's so much to be proud of. And the people who I've been able to work with, I'm quite honored of every single one of them. When I look back to the National Geographic documentary film, Paris to Pittsburgh, and the highlight of not only myself, but the city of Orlando as one of those vanguard cities, I think that that was a big moment for me in my career. One, I've been growing up watching and listening to Nat Geo my whole life. And to be in a documentary where I'm actually surfing in the documentary. And then I get to talk about my upbringing and the incredible work that we're doing in Orlando. I mean, it was just, it was that kind of high point in the career that the the work that I'm doing is getting the recognition that it deserves. And it's now gone global. 
in 147 different languages. And millions and millions of people have been able to see the work that we've been doing. And I think that's that was one of the most proud moments. I think just being part of that yeah, experience, yeah. part of that movie. I don't know if you were able to see it. I, I have. I have. In fact, cool. it's really powerful. And in fact, we'll include a link to the film in the show notes. I definitely recommend that our listeners check that out. It's a compelling story. And Chris and the city of Orlando have a, have a featured role in it. What's been the biggest challenge of your career that, that you've had to overcome? One is just the inertia of the status quo. And I think it's one thing, you know, we know that changing people's behaviors is almost impossible. It's extremely difficult to do. But changing the behaviors of an institution like a city that's been around for a couple hundred years and is used to certain protocols and policies and ways of, of, of doing is a whole nother level. And I think that's just genuinely a challenge that municipal government leaders like myself and public officials face in trying to change this institution that's, that's been so rooted in the same for so long. I'd also say uniquely here in Florida that the state politics has been uh, quite a challenge. We, we have had uh, leadership at the state that has literally called climate change a hoax, that has literally made any term of sustainability or climate informal documents banned and illegal at a certain point. And we now have kind of state leadership that's really focused on preemptions and really focused on stripping the home rule of local governments to address some of the most meaningful issues. Just this past legislative session, Congress and our governor signed a, a preemption bill around regulating energy systems within our cities. And it's really questioning whether, you know, cities that don't control their own utilities, you know, how much leverage they have to move towards a zero carbon economy. Those are some of the inherent challenges that, that we're facing here in Orlando and in the state and as a whole, I think, as we move towards this future. It's interesting that you cite that as the biggest challenge, Chris, because highly entrepreneurial people find the bureaucracies of both large companies and government to be quite constraining. I think you have found, it's interesting, you reference Mayor Dyer quite a bit, and it sounds like there's an alignment of thinking between the two of you that mm -hmm. has allowed you to flourish. Definitely. I mean, his. I love his leadership style because he puts the right people in the right places and lets them run. And he's literally told me, Chris, you got carte blanche other than things that are legally preempted or will break <laughs> our bank. You know, other than that, you're good. We're green lighting. Right. We're going. I know I trust in you. I know your knowledge in this space is unparalleled. I know that you're passionate about it. That's why I have you in this role and, and gives me the runway. And that's what a true leader is about. I think I respect Mayor Dyer so much because of that and his ability to, to trust in me and help me take our city to the vision that he's had for it for, for so long. I'm curious, outside of Mayor Dyer, who's had the greatest impact on your career and who do you admire most? Another really tough question, because I don't think there's a single individual. I am lucky enough to have an incredible network of, of mentors and people who I consider mentors, who I call upon for advice and guidance. And I continue to point back to my grandfather, Jorge de Duya, who, you know, again, for me is inspiration. I think his story of being an entrepreneur in Cuba basically getting his entire venture and, and, and future stripped from him through the Castro regime, fled to, to the United States, establishes his company again in the United States in Miami, and still to this day, 
uh, almost 80 to 80 years old, still still working. And his industry is import exports. And he's really focused actually on trying to incorporate sustainability into that because of my influence to him. But inspiration, no doubt. Penelope Canan, Dr. Canan that I talked about earlier, I think her wisdom really helped me identify my career path. And I'm forever grateful for her to push me in that direction. Again, I was undeclared before her class and I declared immediately after that class was done. And it was definitely because of her and and that has created this momentum. And then there's a litany of, you know, other incredible leaders out there. Your your Jigger Shaw's, your Bill McKibben's who have incredible integrity. I think what Al Gore has done for our movement is is unparalleled. And I think Tony Saba and the innovation that he's pushing. I mean, Laura Turner Seidel, who's, you know, a great friend and somebody who I admire so much. I mean, the list goes on. We, We are fortunate to have really incredible and inspiring leaders. And I don't think there's any one given person, but certainly each one of those and many more help me continue to do the work that I do every day. You've accomplished more than many do in their career in a relatively short period of time. So you've got most of your game in front of you. When you think about the future, what what impact do you want to leave on the world? Well, one thing I haven't mentioned is that I'm a father. And my daughter, Coraline Danielle, who is four years old now, is someone who every single day I'm thinking about when I'm doing this work. And and I know you could probably relate as a father yourself. And it it changed the game for me in terms of, I knew I was passionate about this topic, but it made it so visceral and so real for me when I had my daughter that I don't think I'll ever turn back. And so I want to obviously make sure that I'm leaving her a better future. And I think that's something everybody wants to do. And then in terms of the impact I want to leave on the industry, I think what I've gathered from my peers about the work we're doing in Orlando is that we're really creating a template for local government action to advance sustainability and climate action. We're demystifying what it means to advance climate policy in local government. We're demystifying what it means to advance resilience and equity. And what I would love to do is ensure that we create a template of these solutions that that can be implemented to accelerate this zero carbon economy that all of us need uh, with the focus on local government. So I think that could be an incredible impact and something that other cities can look to Orlando as a replicable model, or at least one that they they can emulate and and use as an example to advance their own tailored goals. I think that would be the impact I'd like to see. Chris, that's an incredibly compelling vision. And I think the systems approach that you're taking is allowing you to put a template in place that can be replicated. I'd like you to know that it's Smart Energy Decisions, where we're down for supporting you and help you get that message out and help you replicate the model that you're creating. So hopefully this is the first of several things that we can do together. And if we can contribute to helping you make that life's work vision become a uh, reality, that would be extremely gratifying for us. So thank you so much, Chris, for being with us today. This has really been fantastic. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work at SED. Chris, thanks again for a truly inspiring conversation and joining me today on Smart Energy Voices. I I sincerely look forward to watching your continued uh, progress, both personally and as an executive serving the city of Orlando. And to our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the growing Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode with Chris, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes 
and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next Smart Energy Decisions event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Chris in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.